0: Listening to Belt of Truth. Conversations, Arming Laity, Howard by the Armor of God Men's Movement. Visit our website at armingmen.com This is Father Mark Gertner of the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend. I'm so happy to be here and to support the Belt of Truth podcast. I hope that this podcast always serves as a strengthening of faith for all who listen.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to bring Belt of Truth to others, to speak these amazing realities of our Catholic faith into the world. We thank you for all those who have gathered with us and those that will continue to gather with us. Allow our conversations to be an inspiration, a motivation, and a transformation for the souls that receive this. We ask this as we pray together, St. Michael, the Archangel, to defend defend us in battle. Be our safeguard against the, the wickedness and the snares of the devil. devil. May, May God rebuke, rebuke him, we humbly, humbly pray. And, and do, do thou, Prince of the, the heavenly host, by the, the power Lord of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about, about the world, the world seeking, seeking the ruin of souls. souls. Amen. In the name, in the name of, of the Father, and the Son, Holy and the Holy Spirit. Spirit.
2: Amen. Amen. Welcome, friends. You're listening to The Belt of Truth. I'm Rob Gregory. I'm here with a friend of ours, Father Jay Horning from the depths of Wabash, Indiana. Welcome
1: back. Yeah, I've risen to the air, <laughs> breathing again. No, it's great. Wabash is phenomenal. St. Bernard's is amazing. I'm super blessed to be there. It's a dream come true.
2: Well, we miss you. And uh, it's good to be missed, I'm sure. But, you know, You are certainly intimately involved in everything we've been doing with Belt of Truth and Armor of God. So thank you for maintaining your spiritual advisement role. And it's prudent for us to have a conversation today about a topic that is heavy on a lot of people's hearts, which is the Eucharist. Mm. And with us going through a Eucharistic revival as a diocese in a nation, I I wanted to really kind of get into that with you. So let's start with the first question I have, which is, how are we supposed to believe that at Mass... You're literally, as a priest, transforming that host from what it is to the body of Christ. That is a big, insane
1: claim. It is. And you don't hold any punches back, Rob, so I'm glad we start there. <laughs> I want to preface this by just encouraging people to turn to the catechism as well whenever they have questions. I think it's a, the catechism is so underutilized, and so specifically— the Eucharist is spoken of in the Catechism from paragraphs 1322 all the way up to 1419, probably one of the biggest sections. And a lot of what you just ask is highlighted there. So how do we know, how can we take with a claim of faith that that apparent, still visible, to the touch, taste, feel, everything, bread and wine is transformed into the body and blood of Jesus? The easy answer is, because God said so. (laughs) The more difficult and complex answer is, there has to be a transformation in us. So, to understand the Eucharist, one of the seven sacraments, means we need to understand other sacraments, namely the priesthood. To understand the priesthood, we have to understand what Jesus is intending to do with and for the church. So, I was thinking about this, actually, on the drive-up. I'm glad you brought it up. And specifically, I want to highlight a word which is consecration. Consecration is utilized specifically when we're talking about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is consecrated, it means it is changed. And so we, the other word we use is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, big fancy word, trans to be transformed, the substance is transformed. That's in comparative to consubstantiation, often the Lutheran belief where the bread and the wine are with the substance of the divinity of God, whereas in the Catholic Church we say the bread and wine are now transformed and are the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So those are the distinctions. Consecration. What else is consecrated and what does it mean to be consecrated? Bishops are consecrated. A priest, when he's ordained, his hands are consecrated. In confirmation, in a certain sense, we are consecrated. And in baptism, we are consecrated because all of that is utilizing sacred chrism chrism is what changes us. It, it, it makes us different. So, when the priest, who now is in the person of Jesus Christ, through his ordination and by the consecration of his hands, which have been changed to do the work of God, says the prayers, the Holy Spirit descends down onto the altar of sacrifice, and that substance, bread and wine, are transformed forever into the body and blood of Jesus Through the prayers of consecration. It still doesn't answer the question necessarily, how do I believe that? We believe it because of faith. A lot of people struggle with this concept because it still looks and tastes and feels. And the Eucharist was the first thing that I questioned as a non Catholic. I went to a retreat. We were in adoration where we had a consecrated host there in the presence for us to adore and worship. And I thought, this is stupid. You're all idiots. That's a piece of bread. I'm out. Peace. And then my mother's voice went into my head and said, respect that. Okay, mom. <laughs> so I went back and I sat down and I said, Lord, I don't know if I can believe this, but I'll try. So I guess my, my answer is, even if you don't know, try, because people have believed this for 2,000 years. Another analogy. This is also a, a true humility for me. I don't know English well pronouns, adverbs, subjects, all that. I don't know them. I don't remember being taught that. It's not a skill set I have. I know those rules are real. I know they exist. I know someone said it, and therefore I have to follow them. Even if a person's like, I just can't believe about the Eucharist. Jesus said it. John 6 is the place we often go, the, the bread of life discourse. Jesus says, take, and then in the Last Supper discourses, Take this, all of you, eat of it. This is my body. I mean, unless you think you're smarter than Jesus, which I'm not, I got to just trust him. And so the, the faith, the beauty is our science can take us so far. Faith has to take us the rest of the way. Other little drop. Blessed Carlo Kudis, awesome young saint, in his young life, created a website entirely about Eucharistic miracles, which you should all check out, because that takes the science and the faith and it blends them together. So there's the long answer to your simple short question. That's a great
2: way to start the conversation I think because you know jumping right into that insane claim I think is is, is something I struggle with from time to time we I usually land where you did which is you know it, it requires faith and it is a mystery and and it's okay to say that correct
1: correct well, I think when people They struggle sometimes, like, well, I sometimes doubt it. Are you still seeking? Are you still looking? Are you still searching? The minute we just decide to say, I give up, I quit, it's too hard, is where the devil's won and we've failed. But for a lot of people, there has to be a transformation in our hearts. Just like when that host is consecrated and transformed, that's forever But Jesus wants to enter into us. He loves us so intimately that he wants to be in our very body with his body and therefore transform us from the inside, which is just mind-boggling. And who else does that? So far be it for me to have you
2: right here with a mic in front of you and not ask you, can you feel anything? I mean, Mm. we don't get a chance to see things through your lens. You know, as the laity, we're we're on the other side of the pews and... Mm. Watching you as a priest perform that function,
1: I mean, give us a look under the hood. What is that like? Yeah, I had an opportunity as a young seminarian to go to Medjugorje. And the point is, Medjugorje has different claims. One of them is the idea that people can see a miracle of the sun. I never see that. I've never thought about it, I've never believed it even personally. And as a priest, I realize. I don't need that miracle because I hold the literal body of Jesus in my fingertips and I see him there. I see him when I do a Eucharistic procession and I bring him out to hundreds of people. I see him when I hold up the host that has been consecrated and transformed and I say the body of Christ I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this. I notice it. I feel it in my in my body when I get to that point in the mass after I've I've consecrated and I'm holding the host and I say, "Take this, all of you. Eat of it. This is my body." There's this smirk that kind of turns onto my face because I know it's real, uh, and I think this is bizarre that I get to hold him, or or when we uh, can celebrate a mass and the, and the other priest will hold a host while the main celebrant holds up the the primary host, and says, behold the Lamb of God. I don't have to look at the host He's holding because I'm holding the body Jesus. I'm holding the host. So yeah, on the, on the internal under-the-hood idea, it blows my mind. And every single time, I'm just amazed. I'm, I'm filled with this joy that comes out as a smirk on my face that this is different, and He's different, and He's making me different, and He's allowed me to do this for others. So I think, yeah, when people struggle deeply with, the, with any sacrament, especially the Eucharist, I think they have to go back to understanding the other sacraments. Like, I think that's just at the core of it.
2: Well, Flannery, Flannery O'Connor famously said, if, if the Eucharist is not the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord, then to hell with it all. Mm-hmm. And for you, as a man, to have given your entire life to this church under the pretext that you wholeheartedly, unequivocally believe— in the Eucharist, that's it. That's that's. It, it's either that or nothing.
1: Absolutely. There's a homily I gave a long time ago about that. I mean, I got really fired up um, because it just it doesn't bother me, it doesn't aggravate me, or upset me. But it it moves me to say, I wouldn't do what I'm doing if there wasn't truth behind this. And to be a convert to to have come to the faith later in life, there was choices I had to make. Yes, but. Those choices all revolved around a truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the church, the truth that he is real and present and gives us the sacraments to encounter him. Josh, you're a convert. I am. I am
0: am a convert. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, (laughs) what what does this feel like to you? I mean, this
2: is, again, Father Stephen Felicia, he, he said it so perfectly. He said, we make an
0: insane claim. Yeah. How did you wrap your brain around that? I remember the very first time my cousin actually through RCIA was guiding me through. And I remember very early on him going into detail of this process. And I remember for the very first time thinking, well, but no one really believes that though, do they? And over the course of time with with guidance and understanding and really diving in to all the processes, it's just become very evident to me that that mystery is just growing inside each and every one of us. That well said on everything that you were rolling through and explaining, because I think it really helps people get a better understanding of the faith and just and just having the faith in the mystery. So it's not a symbol. Mm-mm. It's,
2: it's not, you know, a, a piece of wafer or yeah after the consecration. It's real. Correct. And there's no question in your mind. Nope. To the point where you've given up your entire life for this. Do it again.
1: Again, insane claim. Insane. Because if you ask me that, you know, when I was, in my tw- when I was 20, I've been like, you're crazy. 21? Nope. 22, even after I became Catholic. Still, yeah, okay, I believe this. But this, yeah, I think it's the idea of like, what do you lay your life down for? I lay my life down for my friends. I lay my life down for God. I lay my life down for the truth. And the truth is, that is Him. And I will die defending Him.
0: Was there a, a moment that comes to mind to where you were able to
1: experience that truth, or was it more gradual? Say the the answer right now. I say it had to be gradual. The Lord is gentle. He also like moves fast sometimes, but he is gentle in the way that he wants us to come to know him. He, he's never going to force himself. It's always an invitation. So I appreciate that part. But once you've said yes, once you've opened the door, he's going to kick it down. <laughs> that's mm. that's the truth, I think, as well. So, yeah, it, it, for sure, gradual,
2: for sure. Don't you think because we live in a society where it's like if you can't see, touch, and smell it, it doesn't exist, and we're in a, a kind of a now, 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 show me, show me, show me, this is becoming harder and harder for our Society to grasp. So, I like how you said, hey, for us to get to the Eucharist, you have to believe in the other sacraments because they build off each other, right?
1: Right. And even the Eucharist is technically one of the three sacraments of initiation. So, I find that fascinating. But the sacraments of initiation, you have baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. Baptism is the first sacrament that gives us access to all the other sacraments. Confirmation is a sacrament that seals us to prepare us for the mission, to live it out live out our adult life in the church and we do that at a young age. And then the eucharist is meant to be the nourishment, the food for the journey. In in the typical United States methodology, you baptize a baby, you have children then receive their first communions around second grade with with confession, and then confirmations happen later on, middle school, high school. In our CIA, when a person comes into the church fully and they're baptized, they're baptized, they're confirmed, and then they receive the Eucharist. And there's been debates about about that with bishops and, and the church in years like do they do they move that or not? I don't know what the right answer is. That's both my pay grade. But there's something to say that all three together, united baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, give us the full initiation. The Eastern Rite Church actually does all three at one time when they're when they're toddl- when they're babies. So there's that as well. But they have to go together. It's like connecting the dots. If you, if you take a dot away, you've lost a connection. If you don't understand the priesthood, in fact, like, oh, yeah, their hands are consecrated and changed. That's what allows the change to happen in the host. So when a bishop is consecrated, he's made different. When a person is baptized, they are different. They're no longer just a flesh of—or a, a, a mound of flesh. Like, there's a soul that exists in them. She existed before, anyway. But there's a soul that's now adopted in the family of God. In confirmation, we are sealed by the Spirit. Like, yeah, there's so many things to like look at beyond just like, is this real or not? Is yes, it's real. But here's like the all the substance. That's why again, go to the Catechism, read it. lot of good stuff there.
2: Well, I like how you did that because you have to accept and agree and understand. The fact that your hands are consecrated as a priest To be able to transform that into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of If you If you can't get this, you're not going to get this, right? Right So one builds off the other 100. So we can't skip straight to the Eucharist We have to start with the, the foundation of the faith first
1: And I think that's the beautiful part that Because all the sacraments are instituted by Jesus The Eucharist and priesthood were actually done at the same time You know, so it's like He clearly had a He knew what he was doing, right? Yeah, he's God. So. Absolutely.
2: Answer this claim: Why, if someone says, "Why do I need to receive the Eucharist in a state of grace?" Why, why does it matter? Should, shouldn't I be able to take Jesus in and He heals
1: me? When people ask about receiving the Eucharist in a state of grace, why can't I just receive him on my terms? And you know, isn't the Eucharist also a healing element that if I have sin, it can, it can fix me? And I think we've become a little too flippant in our treatment of the Eucharist. And what I mean by this is just how we go about our encounter with God in and through the Mass. And so here's my little soapbox. When we go to Mass, we are going to a wedding feast. How do you dress for a wedding? You probably, unless you're somewhere else, probably wearing some pants, nice shirt, decent. You're showing up a little early just to make sure you get a good spot. And you're attentive and joyful the whole time. I think there's a lot of people that do that. I think there's a lot of people that also have things that come up in their life, and it makes that challenging from time to time, so we get that. But when we've created a a mindset where mass is just an obligation, I just check a box, we've actually lost the idea of love. Because when we do things out of love, we're willing to sacrifice I'm willing to put on the nicer shirt. I'm willing to get there a little early. I'm willing to to go through some other stuff when I love someone. So, and then when we come forward for the Eucharist, when we're in the Mass, whether we've been there the whole time, we've been attentive, we've been participating, we come forward, and we come forward with just like this robotic, Romanistic conveyor belt. The body of Christ. Amen. No, the body of Christ. Amen. And. There's many ways people can receive communion, so that's not a place to, to get into right now. You can receive on the hand, on the tongue, kneeling. I, that the church gives us those preferences, those opportunities. But are we coming forward ready and willing and excited to receive him? So going back to then a state of grace. To receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, the old adage was, you wouldn't want someone to walk in your house with dirty, muddy shoes. Why would you let the perfect king of the universe into your dirty, muddy soul? Okay. I'm not sure that's the greatest analogy, but we've got it. At the same time, if I am not in relationship with God, which is what sin does and breaks my relationship with God, and I'm going to the Eucharist, the, the Thanksgiving, and I desire to be in communion, to be in a relationship, then my sin has affected my relationship, and therefore, I'm not receiving Him well and lovingly. And that's the point about love. I'm not loving him or myself. So, there's a danger to our soul, and it's, and it's disrespectful to God who's made me and who's given me a free choice. The, this is the thing that really gets me. The obligation is the Sunday observance of Mass, not the Eucharist. You need to be at Mass every week. You do not need to receive communion every week. This idea, and you said it beautifully earlier, Rob, like the idea of now, 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 me, 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 yes, yes, whatever. We've gotten so complacent with, oh, I can just go all the time and receive the Eucharist. And that's good because the Eucharist does change us and transform us and heal us. However, the Eucharist will not have an effect if I'm in a state of deep sin. And this is a beautiful part about the church, right? So sacraments... They act ex opera operanto. Um, They act by the very fact of their being performed. So the Eucharist shows up as long as the priest says the words, regardless of the state of the holiness of the priest. The effectiveness of the graces through the sacrament are affected by the ones who's receiving it, their disposition. So if I'm in a state of deep mortal sin, the grace is not going to have an effect, and I'm actually hurting myself and hurting God. All right, now let's take this other little caveat, because people say, well, then, because then the priest always emphasizes, you need to go to confession. In the beginning of the Mass, during the penitential rite, when we do the I confess to Almighty God, or the Kyrie, Christi Kyrie, whatever is done, that does remove and forgive our venial sins. Thanks be to God. So, if, a, if you went to confession on Saturday, you're having a great day, you're driving to the parking lot on Sunday, someone cuts you off, you're like, ah, oh, I got your." Mm. Okay, venial sin, most likely, you've gone in, you've done your penitential right, you're good to go. However, if you have mortal sin, mortal sin being grave matter, which are the commandments, uh, you have full knowledge about it, you freely chose to do it, and you've not gone to confession with a priest, that can't, that's not forgiven there. Mainly because Jesus tells us go to the priest for, like, go to them for forgiveness and healing. So again, I am being flippantly disrespectful to God. Saying, I can just take you whenever I want, however I want. When in fact, the better loving action is to sacrifice and say, Lord, I'm not in a place worthy to receive you. And because I love you and honor you, I will not do that to you or myself. So, I hope that
2: answers that. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So, talk about why or how the Eucharist
1: can heal. mm it has healing power, so how, how can that be? As sacrifice, this is 1414 in the Catechism. As sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. Continues 1418, Because Christ himself is present in the sacrament of the altar, he is to be honored with the worship of adoration, so that goes into adoration. When a person is dying, we go and we anoint them with the oils of the sick. We hear confession. We prepare their body for death and their soul for the, the journey into the afterlife. But we also give them Eucharist. And at that point, it's called viaticum. It's food for the journey. The Eucharist heals the soul. Can the Eucharist also heal the body in in physical ways? Of course, because he's God and he can do what he wants. But it heals the soul especially. And we know the soul is damaged. The, The soul is wounded, that we as humans are fallen. And we know that because of Adam and Eve. And yet at the same time, God has said, I will enter into this world, this broken world. I will be with you. I will provide an advocate for you in the Holy Spirit and I will give you my very self, which is perfect and glorified, so that you can continue journeying in this reality. So that's that's the best I've got. I'm sure there are saints that have said things smarter than me. I'm sure that there's stuff in like readings and stuff that's better. But I would say the healing elements of the Eucharist is all for the soul and the transformation to make us more like him. Well, I think that's great. And Bishop
2: himself said that there's a connection between when I asked him, why do we need a Eucharistic revival? How did we get here? He himself said, there's a connection between how people receive the Eucharist or the lack of reverence in the Mass and the lack of faith or awareness in the Eucharist. You kind of spoke about that, but go a little further with why that matters.
1: Yeah, so to receive the Eucharist in Mass and to have positioned ourselves, oriented ourselves back to the Lord, it, it's not just a sign of respect and honor. It's a respect of our unity with God because the Eucharist is meant to connect us. Uh, There's images you'll see sometimes of the Mass where heaven and earth and and even purgatory are being smashed together. So the saints in heaven are rejoicing, they're glorifying, the the souls in purgatory are are hoping and yearning, and, and we here on the church militant, the church on earth, are participating. So our role to participate is to give our very best. The thing that, yeah, it it, bump, it bums me out, and this is maybe not fair, but when you intuit or, or kind of have an idea like that person hasn't been to confession or, you know, they're not in a state where they should receive and, and they're coming forward out of... Maybe embarrassment or... Well, sure. Embarrassment can be part of it, but they're just coming forward, going through emotion. Yeah. Obligation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, then the embarrassment comes up like, what if this person looks at me and thinks, why didn't I receive communion? Like, who cares? Your soul is more important than their opinion. And that's something we have to fight. We have to fight tooth and nail. And I think I've seen it amongst different people different times, but when a person comes forward and they just, they cross their arms to receive that blessing, I'm so grateful because one, they've made that that declarative statement in their mind and heart and soul to say, God, you are worthy and I'm not there, but I'm here to honor you. And I still long for you and want you. And so I'm going to present myself, but I'm going to keep myself from damaging my soul and damaging you. Cause I think other the other point of it that I'm saying in all this people are like, well, how can I hurt God? Well, God's like all powerful, right? So how could we hurt him? We can hurt him by not loving him well. Cause even in my like God's always given me freedom. He's always always given me choice. And my choices can be good or bad. But my freedom is to to offer perfect love. And even when I'm imperfect, I can perfectly love him by saying, Lord. I can't let you enter here right now because it's not good. But I can go in and seek that forgiveness and healing. So yeah, Bishop's point is perfect on that.
2: So what's your take on extraordinary Eucharistic ministers? I mean, with the laity administering the Eucharist at mass, I mean, are you comfortable with that?
1: I have no problem personally with extraordinary ministers. In one regard, that like that the, even the title is helpful, right? You have the ordinary minister, priests and deacons, bishops. And you have someone who's in an extraordinary. They're in a place that is like extraordinary. So, do I think people who are extraordinary ministers need to be in a state of grace? 100%. Do I think they need to be dressed appropriately for Mass? 100%. Can they aid the church? 100%. And so, there's goodness there. 100%. But if they're not in a state of grace, they shouldn't be distributing our Lord. Just like, you know, a priest, like, should better be in a state of grace if he's celebrating Mass. Now, the nice thing is if a priest is not and he still celebrates Mass, the Eucharist still shows up because God is better. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, back to the idea of, like, the disposition I put myself in. That's really important. So, not a problem. But if, it, if people desire to receive from a priest, by all means, go to the priest. If you recognize who you're receiving, though and that's something I want to make a, a clarity statement on. It's not just what a consecrated host, but a who, Jesus Christ. And so, our language is also really important that we say there there is the Eucharist in the tabernacle, the consecrated host is in the tabernacle, Jesus Christ is in the tabernacle. That's all very true. The extraordinary minister is being given an amazing gift. Even, like, the same with a lector. Like, the lector is equally as important as an extra minister. You are delivering the word of God. I mean, come on. It's crazy. So, they're, they're good. They're important roles. And the church highlights, again, the power that the lady can utilize to uh, help us, which is great. And different priests will have different opinions about that, but the church permits it, therefore it's good. I trust the church. So, Father Jay... If the
2: Eucharist contains the physical presence of Christ's body and blood, then doesn't that mean that Catholics are considered cannibals?
1: No, we are not cannibals. And here's here's the beauty, and it's not, again, to take anything away or to confuse us more, but the body and blood of Jesus Christ consecrated in the Mass still, through our senses, appears as bread and wine. The Lord did this specifically because of that concept. He doesn't want us to fear a thing like, oh my gosh, I'm a cannibal. Now, the Eucharistic miracles that have happened actually have hosts that are transformed into flesh, that they become firmer in in, in contextuality. The precious blood has congealed to the consistency of blood. So, this is all possible. But the reason that we still see and feel, even taste, that's what we call the accidents the texture of the host, the the flavor of the wine. Those are the accidents that remain behind so as to not create the sense or state of fear or concern of like, I'm a cannibal. No, the Lord gives us that gift and also gives us that ability to not fear.
2: So, the next question is, Wasn't Jesus commanding the apostles to host a perpetual memorial dinner in his honor instead of commanding them to literally eat his body and blood?
1: Well, it's interesting because if you use John 6, when he's talking about the bread of life discourse, he, depending on the translation you look at and then the the original Greek or Hebrew, uh, the word eat is to actually masticate, to chew on flesh. And so, like, he says it three times the first two times people left. They're like, that's weird. And he didn't change. So at the Last Supper, yes, he says, do this in memory of me, do this in remembrance of me. that That's the mass, that's the first mass. There's one perpetual mass that's always existing in and throughout time because God is outside of time. So that's an interesting point that, no, its it's a perpetual celebration that is constantly happening. And within that celebration, He wants us to encounter and receive Him physically. Therefore, we have His body and blood. So why can a non-Catholic not receive the Eucharist? My mom asks that question all the time. She's not Catholic. And at first, it kind of bugged her. She's like, what if I believe it is the body and blood of Jesus? I respond, then why aren't you Catholic? Yeah, (laughs) And and it's a fact. When someone explained that to me when I was not Catholic, it was actually... To is a sign of love and respect for me and my own belief, my understanding, because to come to present oneself for communion has a few declarative statements. One, I am a practicing Catholic, I fulfill my worship obligations, I'm in a state of grace, I believe what the church teaches. Okay, so when a person, let's say, is Lutheran, very, very close to us, right? Consubstantiation, transubstantiation. Lutheran says, I believe that's the body and blood, but, well, there's the issue, but it's not the exact same belief. I'm not going to force you to believe what I believe. That has to be choice. If you want to come forward and receive, then you need to abide by the other teachings of the church. So what about the the thought
2: or the topic of
1: adoration?
2: We've talked Mm -hmm. a lot about the mass component of the Eucharist, but talk a little bit about the Eucharist as it relates to adoration and what it can do. For a person through adoration.
1: I'm so glad you asked that. Thank you. Yeah, I've been to a lot of conferences. I've held a lot of retreats. I've done a lot of things with people that involve adoration. And particularly among the young people, I want to direct this point. Adoration is beautiful. We see transformative things happen. People are like, oh my gosh, that's Jesus Christ. He's coming to me. I can adore and worship him. I'm like, absolutely stinking true. Why are you not that hyped up for Mass? When you actually consume him, Psh, my blood. So, adoration only happens because of the Mass. Like, that's not just a piece of bread in the monstrance. That's, a, that's consecrated host That happened because the Mass was celebrated. But what adoration does is allows us to perpetually adore him, to give continued worship to him, to actually look at God as he looks at us. What I love about adoration is this visual idea that there's this ray of light that's actually penetrating out of the out of the monstrance into my heart. That it's actually going into my heart and shining light in all the dark places that I don't want I don't want him to show up, but he actually can because he's God. Adoration is an addition to our worship. It's icing on top of the already amazing cake. Where we get to just be in his presence, and I think adoration provides a great sense of peace because people are like, I want to be with God, I want to encounter him, I want to hear him, I want to be close to him and if adoration actually helps us better pray in the mass, thanks be to God. if my understanding of mass ele- is elevated by going to adoration, thanks be to God. but what I know is people long for this encounter, and for some reason there's this distinction of when I go to adoration, I encounter him but But in Mass, I'm just here. It's the same Lord, same presence, same physically there. I was recently at a conference with 500 young people, and I had the distinct honor of processing our Lord in the monstrance into the the place of worship. And I will tell you, the cacophony of sound and praise that came through their voices was deafening. And as I'm holding this monstrance and looking at the consecrated host in Jesus Christ, all I can think of—it's all for you, Lord. All of this praise is for you. And one of the cool things is in a procession, sometimes people will, as they line the they line the aisles, they'll reach out and they'll they'll try to touch the the cope or the humeral veil, the the articles the priest is wearing. And the thing is, they did it so much, I felt like I was being dragged backwards. <laughs> like, you gotta let me go. I gotta get forward. Yeah. But it really is evident that those individuals understood who was in the room. They understood who was coming to them. And the only difference about that versus mass is while Jesus still comes to us, we make a distinct choice to go to him when we go forward in that communion procession and say, Lord, I'm not ready for you to come into me, even though we also say I'm not worthy that you should enter my roof, but say the word and my soul shall be healed. That's what we long for. Mm -hmm.
2: So as it relates to the Eucharist and the Eucharistic revival and the lay faithful and the numbers that we're seeing of people who struggle with the belief in the body, blood, soul and divinity, Father Jay, are you hopeful? I'm
1: waiting for one of these episodes when someone says, no, (laughs) don't be the first, (laughs) but I actually thought about this really intently. I am hopeful. That's my job. That's my vocation. I don't have a reason to not be. I almost want to pose that question to the the listeners. Are they hopeful? I mean, my hope is, yeah, I'm hopeful. I I know the Lord can do anything, for sure. But are people listening hopeful? And if they are, it doesn't matter what I say, because I already know the truth. I already know what God's going to do. I pray that they are hopeful, I pray that this revival brings hope. I pray that there is a new, as we've heard before, a Pentecost in the church. So yes, I'm hopeful. I won't be the first to say no, but I pray that others are hopeful as well. Well, Father Jay,
2: it was, it was a blessing to sit down with you again. I miss this, and thank you for carving out some time to get into this very deep and important conversation about the Eucharist. So thanks for
0: being
1: here, man. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. You've been listening
0: to Belt of Truth. Powered by the Armor of God Men's Movement. Located in Fort Wayne, South Bend Diocese in Fort Wayne, Indiana. For more information about Belt of Truth and Armor of God, visit armingmen.com.
2: We're coming out of a pandemic. Depression's at an all-time high. Marriages are in disarray. Churches are divided. We're arguing over gender. The sanctity of life is under attack. Now is the time and the season to have real conversations. We're gonna take a microphone and we're gonna go find people to authentically have real conversations designed to arm people to reclaim that priestly authority. Come join us on Belt of Truth. Our podcast is real and it's going to enlighten you and enrich you to a point where you're going to want to take these issues on. Come join us at the Belt of Truth.